Hi, I'm Tyler Saltzi, pastor of Grace Bible Fellowship in Peru, Illinois. Our mission at Grace Bible Fellowship is to magnify the glory of the triune God in Christ Jesus by proclaiming God's word to advance the gospel in our lives and the world. We base who we are and what we do on the good news of Jesus. If you would like to find more information about Grace Bible Fellowship, you can visit our website at www.gbfperu.org. I'm so thankful you've come here to listen to God's Word proclaimed as we seek to understand it and be transformed by it. I hope you find this time meaningful, challenging, convicting, joyful, and even life-changing as we worship through the preaching of God's Word. If you would take your copies of the scripture with me this morning, open to the book of Exodus, chapter 26. We've been making our way through the book of Exodus, slowly but surely, step by step, little by little. And we come to a text today which honestly, if we were to read it in our daily quiet time or daily devotion, we might think, what in the world does this have to do with me? (laughs) How do I apply this today to my life, to what I'm going through? God's word is profitable for teaching, for rebuke, for correction, for training in righteousness. And so even when we come to Exodus 26, It has not changed. It's still dependable. It still does its perfect work. We can still lean upon it. So let's lean upon it hard together today. You stand with me as I read Exodus 26, all 37 verses. Stand with me as I read. Hear the word of the Lord. Moreover, you shall make the tabernacle with ten curtains of fine twined linen and blue and purple and scarlet yarns. You shall make them with cherubim skillfully worked into them. The length of each curtain shall be 28 cubits and the breadth of each curtain four cubits. All the curtains shall be the same size. Five curtains shall be coupled to one another and the other five curtains shall be coupled to one another. You shall make loops of blue on the edge of the outermost curtain in the first set. Likewise, you shall make loops on the edge of the outermost curtain in the second set. Fifty loops you shall make on the one curtain, and fifty loops you shall make on the edge of the curtain that is in the second set. The loops shall be opposite one another, and you shall make fifty clasps of gold and couple the curtains one to the other with the clasps, so that the tabernacle may be a single whole. You shall make curtains of goat's hair for the tent over the tabernacle. Eleven curtains shall you make. The length of each curtain shall be thirty cubits, and the breadth of each curtain four cubits. The eleven curtains shall be the same size. You shall couple five curtains by themselves, and six curtains by themselves, and the sixth curtain you shall double over at the front of the tent." You shall make 50 loops on the edge of the curtain that is outermost in one set and 50 loops on the edge of the curtain that is outermost in the second set. You shall make 50 clasps of bronze and put the clasps into the loops and couple the tent together that it may be 
a single hole. And the part that remains of the curtains of the tent, the half curtains, curtain that remains shall hang over the back of the tabernacle. And the extra that remains in the length of the curtains, the cubit on the one side and the cubit on the other side, shall overhang over the sides of the tabernacle on this side and that side to cover it. And you shall make for the tent a covering of tanned ram skins and a covering of goat skins on top. You shall make upright frames for the tabernacle of acacia wood. Ten cubits shall be the length of a frame, and a cubit and a half the breadth of each frame. There shall be two tenons in each frame for fitting together. So shall you do for all the frames of the tabernacle. You shall make the frames for the tabernacle, twenty frames for the south side, and forty bases of silver you shall make under the twenty frames, two bases under one frame for its two tenons, and two bases under the next frame for its two tenons. And for the second side of the tabernacle, on the north side, 20 frames, and there 40 bases of silver, two bases under one frame and two bases under the next frame. And for the rear of the tabernacle westward, you shall make six frames. And you shall make two frames for corners of the tabernacle in the rear. They shall be separate beneath, but joined at the top, at the first ring. Thus shall it be with both of them, they shall form the two corners." And there shall be eight frames with their bases of silver, 16 bases, two bases under one frame and two bases under another frame. You shall make bars of acacia wood, five for the frames of the one side of the tabernacle and five bars for the frames of the other side of the tabernacle and five bars for the frames of the side of the tabernacle at the rear westward. The middle bar, halfway up the frames, shall run from end to end. You shall overlay the frames with gold and shall make their rings of gold for holders for the bars, and you shall overlay the bars with gold. Then you shall erect the tabernacle according to the plan for it that you were shown on the mountain. And you shall make a veil of blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twine linen. It shall be made with cherubim skillfully worked into it. And you shall hang it on four pillars of acacia overlaid with gold, with hooks of gold on four bases of silver. And you shall hang the veil from the clasps and bring the ark of the testimony in there within the veil. And the veil shall separate for you the holy place from the most holy. You shall put the mercy seat on the ark of the testimony in the most holy place. And you shall set the table outside the veil and the lampstand on the south side of the tabernacle opposite the table and you shall put the table on the north side you shall make a screen for the entrance of the tent of blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twine linen embroidered with needlework and you shall make for the screen five pillars of acacia and overlay them with gold their hook shall be made of gold and you shall cast five bases of bronze for them this is the word of the lord thanks be to god let's pray Father, what we have not, give us. What we know not, teach us. And what we are not, make us. That we might be conformed into the image and likeness of your Son, Jesus Christ. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.
Andrew Peterson, songwriter and singer, author, has written a song, and it goes like this. I'm not going to sing it. I give you praise, O great invisible God, for the moon in the space of the dark night, for the smile of a face in the sunlight, for the sound of the storm on the window, for the morning adorned with a new snow, for the tears on the face of the old man made clean by the grace of the good lamb. We hold on to this truth, that God is invisible. The second London Baptist Confession says it this way, The Lord our God is but one only living and true God, whose subsistence is in and of himself, infinite in being and perfection, whose essence cannot be comprehended by any but himself, a most pure spirit, invisible, without body, parts, or passions. We even teach this to our children. It's one of the first things We want them to know, and we ask it in a way that they can understand. We put to them a question, a question that goes like this, can you see God? To which they are to reply, no, I cannot see God, but he always sees me. We teach our children two things, probably more, but at least two things, with this answer. First, just because you cannot see God does not mean that God doesn't exist. And second, this God who exists and who you cannot see will hold you accountable for how you live your life. He sees you He sees everything about you, from everything that you do to the depths of your heart, everything that you are. God sees all of you, and you cannot escape his holy and righteous sight. For some, this is terrifying. But for the Christian, we say, search me, O God, and know my heart, and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way of everlasting. We know that God is invisible from direct statements that we read in the Bible, like 1 Timothy 1.17, to the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever, amen. When we say this truth, that God is invisible, what does the world say? You are crazy for believing in an invisible God. They think that we have thrown reason out the window. In their minds, believing in an invisible God is like saying that we believe in an imaginary God. But we do not believe in in an imaginary God. We have not checked our minds at the door. And let us 
not fall for it any longer, dear Christian. It's time for us to stop letting the world frame the questions according to their own understanding. Let us stop being enslaved to their way of thinking or their reasoning. Let us stop taking their accusations so seriously. You think I'm crazy for believing in the invisible God? Well, I think you're crazy for believing only in what you can see. What say you? Who is crazier? Holding that you will only believe what you can see is untenable. You can't stay there. Faith is not seen. And how many people say, we see, we see, but their guilt remains? All of what you see, all of your sight, if you base your life only on what you can see, it will get you nowhere. Because the things that you see are transient. They are passing away. They will not, cannot last. If you think you live a reasonable and blessed life because everything is based on what you see, you have completely missed the boat. You have missed everything. You've missed the whole purpose and point of human existence. Who are the blessed ones? Who are the people who are blessed in the world? The ones like Thomas, who had to place his fingers in the holes in Jesus' hands or place his hand in Jesus' side? No, but what does Jesus say? Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Jesus says who the blessed ones are. Those who haven't seen him, yet they still believe. Having faith in what we don't see is seen. Let me say that again. Let's not miss that. Having faith in what we don't see is seen. We see more clearly than the smartest person in the world, but there is a problem for us. If we believe in this invisible God, how are we going to remember that he is with us? How are we going to know that he's close to us? How are we going to be assured and reassured that he cares for us? My wife and I dated for four years or so long distance, talking over the phone. In those moments, what did I want? I wanted to be with her. I didn't want to be apart. That was God's plan. Not being able to see her made it that much more difficult. 
how much more so with God? Is God close to you? Are you close to God? These are the questions that we wrestle with. They are the questions that can disturb us and cause us to be fearful or anxious. And it was no different with the Israelites. (laughs) They, like us, were called to believe in in an invisible God. A God whom they could not see. A God whom they could not touch. How would they know that God is with them? How would they know that God is near How will they know that God is among them? How God in his grace and goodness toward his people, how would they know that he was good and gracious? Well, the Lord does something. He gives them something visible. He gave them the tabernacle. The tabernacle is a visible reminder of the invisible God's presence in their midst. The tabernacle is a visible reminder of the invisible God's presence that was in their midst. If there was a question if God was going to love them, if there was a question if God was going to protect them, if there was a question if God was going to watch over them or care for them, if there was a question if God was going to give them all of his covenant blessings that he had promised them, what did they have to do? They had to look to the tabernacle. There, in the center of their camp, was the visible reminder of God's abiding presence in the midst of His chosen people. What was this tabernacle? It was a tent. And reading our text today, it seems to be a very complex tent. If you've ever been camping and had to set up a tent, you know how complex that can be sometimes. You unpack all the parts of the tent, you're trying to figure out how everything goes together, so hopefully you will have a standing structure that you can sleep in for the night. In Exodus 26, we are told about the structure of the tent where the presence of God was to dwell First, we read about the coverings of the tent. We'll get to our outline in a moment. Here's some good news, hopefully. When we get to the outline in your bulletin, that will be towards the very end of the sermon. Some stuff we got to take care of before we get there. Just talking about the ins and outs of this tent. But first, in our text, we read about the coverings of the tent. Fine twined linen with dyed purple, red, and blue yarn. These curtains were made, each with skillfully embroidered cherubim on the curtain. As we read about, ten of these curtains were made. Five curtains were sewn together as one piece, and five were sewn together as another piece. And around the outside of those curtains were made these loops. Inside of those fabric loops were to be gold clasps. So that then these clasps could be put together and so it would be one whole. Ten curtains coming together with these clasps to make a single whole. 
This was the first layer of the tent. It's what the priests would have seen as they served inside the temple. They would have seen these beautiful pictures embroidered of the cherubim in these linens as they served at the table of the bread of the presence or as they tended to the lampstand or as they put incense on the altar of incense. They were surrounded by the heavenly court, if you will. What comes next, though? And you can see a, a rendering of this also in your bulletin there at the bottom of the corner of your note page, if it's helpful. But after this linen layer, next was a layer of curtains that were made of goat hair. Eleven curtains are made. Now, instead of five and five grouped together, it's five and six that are grouped together. Again, loops around the edges. Now there are bronze clasps. Before there were gold clasps. Now there are bronze clasps that, again, bring these pieces together. The one that has the six curtains on it, that, that one lap, that extra lap, would be what was at the entrance of the tent and would be folded over. But again, these all come together to make a single whole. It's slightly larger than the first curtain, so there would be some overhang in the back and on the sides. This curtain provided more protection from the elements. And it also was a single whole. And then we see other coverings, coverings of ram skins and then goat skins on the top. From a functional standpoint, we see more and more protection from the elements with each added layer. But also the layers depicted a spiritual truth. The most elaborate layer was closest to the interior of the tent. It was made from linen, a plant-based material, and the clasps were of gold. Then, one step removed from the holiness is a covering of animal hair. Nothing necessarily elaborate. Instead of gold clasps, it has bronze clasps. And then, the outer layers. We have moved from plants to animal hair and now to animal skin, dead animals, leather to provide the most protection, but it's the furthest removed from the presence of God. In the next section, we begin to read about the frames of the tent. Most likely, these were hollow frames, about 15 feet tall and about 2 feet wide, lined around the sides and the back of the tabernacle. Also, two frames in the back corner, back corners. All the frame fit together with what the Bible calls tenons. We read about that there. Probably not a word that we use that often. Might have been something like tongue and groove, so that they, these frames fit together nicely. On each frame, they have two silver bases on which they sat. And then there are bars that run parallel all the way around the sides of the tabernacle. All the frames and all the bars are made of acacia wood overlaid with gold. Moses is told to erect the tabernacle according to the plan that he was shown on Mount Sinai in verse 30. If there was any confusion over these various parts, confusion of how they went together, confusion of what was to be done, we're told there in verse 30, this pattern was shown to Moses. He saw the pattern, and so it was not open for interpretation for him. He knew exactly how it was supposed to be built, and he was to fashion this 
earthly tabernacle after the heavenly tabernacle that he had seen there on Mount Sinai. Finally, the last section, we're told about two more curtains. One is the veil that separated the interior of the tent into two rooms. There was the place called the Most Holy Place or the Holy of Holies. This room was to include the Ark of the Covenant. To separate this was a veil embroidered again with cherubim to warn that what was behind the veil was the very throne of God and to limit the access to that throne, the place where heaven and earth meet. There was the mercy seat on the ark where the presence of God was said to reside. And outside this veil was the holy place where there was the table, the lampstand, and the altar of incense. One more screen or veil was put at the entrance of the tent supported by five pillars and five bases. And while still fine twine linen, it did not have the cherubim embroidered on it like the veil inside the tabernacle. So, here we have this tabernacle structure with coverings, frames, and veils. The structure about 45 feet long and about 15 feet wide. The innermost sanctum, the Holy of Holies, is a perfect cube. So it's 15 feet by 15 feet by 15 feet. A few points to draw out from this building. First, we see the, the degrees of holiness in the materials. As you move further from God's presence, the more ordinary the materials that are used. Those that are closest to God's presence are to be the purest and the most precious of materials. Even the linen covering that was used to make that inner covering was the same material that was used for the priest's garments as they served inside the temple, the tabernacle, excuse me. The closer you get to the presence of God, the more holy. The unholy or the less holy is removed from the presence of God. We also read that the tabernacle was to be a single whole, one whole unit. Or very literally, it says, so that the tabernacle would be one. The construction of the tabernacle, seen specifically in the coverings, was one where there were interlocking parts so that it would come together to make something unified. Everything fits together perfectly in the tabernacle as designed by God. This speaks to why the tabernacle was constructed the way it was constructed. The tabernacle is supposed to be a microcosmic temple. It's a big word. Micro, we've heard of that word, microcosm. Well, now this is a microcosmic temple. What does that mean? It's a miniature version of the heavens and the earth. The first century Jewish historian Josephus even says the tabernacle was made in a way of imitation and representation of the universe. It speaks to the fact that the entire creation is to be a temple for God. And so with the tabernacle being one whole or as one, it speaks of how all of creation is perfectly designed by God to glorify Him. 
The wholeness and unity of creation are created with the intention of being a temple for God. This is what's described in Isaiah 40, verse 22. It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in. You hear the similarity there? Here is God. He stretches out the heavens like a curtain, like a tent for him to dwell in. The tabernacle was a representation of God's sovereignty over everything that he created. Everything points to the royal status of the one who occupies the tabernacle. Not only showing that God is king over his people, but also declaring God is king over everything and over everyone. The one in their midst is no other than the all-powerful, sovereign Lord of the universe who is worthy of all of their praise and the one to whom they are to pledge their allegiance and the one they are to devote themselves to and love with all that they are. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and might. And finally, we must talk about the veil that separated the holy of holies, from the holy place. It was behind this veil where the Ark of the Covenant was to be placed. Only the high priest could go into this holy of holies, and that only once a year to make atonement for the people. The veil hid the presence of God from the rest of Israel. The Israelites would never see the Ark of the Covenant. Think about that for a moment. We read about that a few weeks ago, the construction of the Ark of the Covenant. Here, we're told about it in the book of Exodus. We're told about what it looks like, but the Israelites would never have seen the Ark itself. Even as it went with them, it was covered. And even most of the priests who served in the temple, would never, ever see the Ark of the Covenant. They would never see it with their own eyes. They could not see it because they could not gaze upon the glory of the Lord. He was still, in a certain sense, hidden from their eyes. And it's this paradox. There's a paradox where we've said the visible tabernacle that was in the midst of the people was to remind the people of God's abiding presence in their midst, but there was still something in the tabernacle that they could not see and that they would never see. And it's this paradox of knowing that God's presence is there in your midst, but not being able to see God actually puts us in the stream of the biblical storyline of what God is doing in the world. Because the tabernacle is not the end. The tabernacle is a pointer, a pointer to bigger and better things. The tabernacle would go away, but the promise of God's abiding presence among his people would not go away. And so how does our understanding of the tabernacle help us as we continue to read our Bibles? What does it point us to? Well, now get out your outline 
1. God's abiding presence in the tabernacle points to the incarnation of Christ. God's abiding presence in the tabernacle points to the incarnation of Christ. Do you want to know the enduring presence of God? Then you have to know Jesus. God sent his son so that he would be the fulfillment of the tabernacle. Wherever Jesus went, there you would see the very glory of God. We read this in John 1.14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. There it is, the word. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. The word became flesh and dwelt and tabernacled among us. And what happened when that took place? Well, we saw something. We saw glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father. A glory that is full of the things that we need. A glory that's full of God's grace and a glory that's full of God's truth. Jesus made the invisible God visible. In fact, Colossians 1.15 says this, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Jesus is the hope of the world in that He fulfills what we long for. We don't long for a set of principles. We don't long for doctrine. We don't long for boring sermons. We don't long for more things to fill up our already busy schedules. We long for a person. We long for the very person of God. Jesus is the embodiment of God. If you want to see God, look to Jesus because he is God. He is the only way you can know Emmanuel, God with us. And the promise we have from the lips of Jesus is that for those who believe in him, for those who trust in him, for their salvation, he will always, always, always be with us. Matthew 28. Turn there with me, would you? Matthew 28. I want you to see it and hear it. Matthew 28, the very end of the book of Matthew. Verse 18. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, look at those two words there, and behold, sit up, take notice, be comforted, be encouraged, don't miss it, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. When is Jesus not with you, dear Christian? When does Jesus leave you alone? When does Jesus leave you by yourself? Have you ever been with someone and they said, you know what, I just need some alone time right now. I just need to spend some time by myself. Guess what? With Jesus, we don't get alone time. And we're thankful that we don't get alone time. Because we want Jesus. 
And he is with us. He is caring for us. And we can fulfill the things that he's called us to do only because he is with us. John 15, Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Abide in me and I in you. For apart from me, you can do, what's the next word? Nothing. Nothing. But maybe we still have a problem. Because... We've not seen Jesus with our eyes. Does that mean he's not with us? Does that dampen or weaken our dependence upon him, our love for him? Flip over to 1 Peter now, 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. Verse 8. And nine. First Peter 1, 8 and 9. Though you have not seen him, that's the reality that Peter's giving us. Peter says this, though you have not seen him, what's next? You love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. When was the last time you did that? When was the last time you applied this verse to your heart and to your life? I don't see Christ, but I love him. I don't see him now, but I believe in him. And so you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to rejoice with inexpressible joy. How do you even do that? What does that even look like? Have you ever been with a small child on Christmas morning? And you give them a gift that they've been longing for and pining after and desiring? And they open that gift and the look on their face and they don't even have the words to say anything because they can't express the joy that they have? Rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Because Jesus, because Jesus is with you. Two, God's abiding presence in the tabernacle points to the intention of the church. Points to the intention of the church. You could also substitute that word intention for purpose. I use them interchangeably. Points to the intention or the purpose of the church. Each of these points build upon each other. What happened in the wilderness with the tabernacle uh, to help the people know that God's abiding presence was with them? Numbers uh, chapter 9 talks about there a cloud resting on the tabernacle so that you would know that God's presence was there. We think about that in a couple ways. Cloud by day, fire by night, resting to know 
God is among his people. But what's interesting is that something happens when you get to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, you have Jesus' disciples. They're about to go out and they're about to evangelize and tell people about the glory of God that they can see in Jesus Christ. And look at this, Acts 2 now, go back in your Bibles, Acts chapter 2. Remember what the cloud and the fire did in the wilderness. It rested on the tabernacle. Now look at Acts chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. Well, 2, 3 and 4. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting, and divided tongues as a fire appeared to them, and what? And rested on each one of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and began to speak in tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Why? Why did the fire rest upon the disciples? the apostles, to show that they were now filled with the Holy Spirit, to show that now the presence of God wasn't in the tabernacle, it wasn't in the temple where they were just about to go to evangelize, no, the presence of God was with them. That's where other people were going to find the presence of God, was going to be in Jesus' people, in his disciples. And so with the ascension of Jesus, God sent the Holy Spirit to indwell his people. Here is God's intention and his purpose for the church. We, we are to be a dwelling place for him. It's what we read this morning. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Is this ever the reason why we come together? Does it ever motivate us? Dear church family, we come together as a demonstration that the Spirit has so knitted together our souls and lives by the indwelling Spirit that we are now the place where God dwells. Coming together as the church is coming to God. It's knowing His abiding presence. It's the visible representation for us now that God's abiding presence has not left us. You want to know that God is with you? You want to know that Jesus is with you? Come to church. And so we do not have to despair. We do not have to doubt or fear or worry. God, are you there? God, are you with us? God, it seems like everything is falling apart. God, I I don't know what to do. I feel so alone. God has not left us to ourselves. It's here. It's here. Dear brother and sister, in the church that we know, God is with us. Finally, three. 
God's abiding presence in the tabernacle points to the inevitability of heaven. I tried to use three eyes there. But we could also say the certainty of heaven. The inevitability or certainty of heaven. One more verse. Go to Revelation 21. Revelation 21, verse 22. Revelation 21, 22. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. There's no need for a tabernacle structure. There's no need for a temple structure. There's no need for a holy of holies. There's no need for an inner sanctuary in heaven. Why? Because you get all of God. Unadulterated, unhindered, you get all of God. God's abiding presence in the tabernacle points to the certainty that there is an eternal state. There is a day when we will be in His presence forever and forever. That there's more to this life than what we can see right now. There are more important things than just the tangible stuff that we can hold. There is an eternal weight of glory that we are being prepared for. Are you ever anxious? You ever worried? You ever wake up in the morning not knowing what the day is going to hold? Do we ever think, whatever my day holds, whatever comes my way, whatever I go through, I know that this earth is not my home. I have a better home. A home more certain and more, sec more secure than my home here. I have a home with my God and my Savior in heaven. I can't bank upon my circumstances today. I can't bank on what I might gain or what I might lose today. I can't bank on anything in this world. But I can bank on eternity. Because I know Jesus Christ. Because I put my faith and trust in him. Because I believe he died on the cross to save me from my sins, to pay the penalty that I should have paid. He took my sins upon himself in his body on that tree so that I might be made righteous in God's sight 
and so that I might be forgiven and so that I might receive eternal life. You know, there's that saying, but Sunday's coming. Maybe you could say that with any day. It's Monday, but Sunday's coming. Why do we say that? Because we're looking forward to Sunday, right? I hope so. I hope we're looking forward to Sunday. I look forward to Sunday. I look forward to being here together. How about let's also say, maybe temporary right now, but heaven's coming. Eternal life in God's glory is coming. Far better than we can ever imagine or far better than we ever deserve the inevitability and the certainty of heaven is coming. I can go on today. I can live today. I can persevere today. I can endure today because I know that heaven's going to be there. And let's get this straight. Heaven is not just the place where we might see our loved ones. Heaven is not a place where we can eat all of the Big Macs and drink all of the Coke that we want and never gain any weight. Heaven is not just a place that's paved with streets of gold. The inevitability and the certainty of heaven is the inevitability and the certainty of being with God. That's why I want to go there. That's why I want to be there. Not because of anything else. I want my Savior and my God. Lord, help us. Help us to live in light of eternity. Through the struggles and difficulties, through the loneliness and despair, through the, the desire of maybe even wanting other people, may we want you more and more each day. May we desire you more and more each day. May we find our comfort from you more and more each day. May we grow in dependence on you more and more each day. May we give ourselves to you more and more each day. And may our lives be lived for you. If there's anyone here, Father, who does not know Jesus, may today be the day of salvation. May they put their faith and trust in the risen Lord today to save them from their sins. May they turn from their sins, repent of their sins. And may they embrace Jesus Christ. May they know what it means when Peter says, though we have not seen him, we love him. Though we do not now see him, we rejoice with joy that is inexpressible, filled with glory. May we rejoice in you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.